You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m. It's hard to be an American and, uh, and to be a Christian. Oh. There's a lot of things distracting us. In the United States, we experience a lot of power from our government. The United States is like a military superpower, you might say. One of the wealthiest cu- countries in the world. And uh, at least for the time being, has, has a lot of diplomatic power too. So it's easy to argue, yeah, this, is the most, this could be the most powerful country around. And biggest economy, biggest military, most diplomatic clout. And I think, I think that's troubling for Jesus followers. It makes following Jesus and doing the gospel hard because Jesus is bringing a sort of anti-worldly power message, you could say. The gospel is it's offering us something different than what we see in the world. It's kind of an upside-down message. This is how it works. That is shouldn't be there. God becomes like us in order to die so that the ultimate power of humans or the ultimate power over humans is eliminated. Death. Put it another way, God becomes human to leave earth as the sole power, as the sole authority to be worshipped and followed and obeyed. And... Even death obeys God. It's unusual. You could say the whole story of the Bible is about the supremacy of God over the world. And more importantly, the supremacy of God over evil, the authority that God has over evil. And the Christian's job, main vocation, is to worship God and submit to God as ruler above all rulers. Which means, could mean ourselves, could mean our government, could mean our economy, right? There's a lot of things that Jesus reigns over. And I think it's hard for us to do that. I think the challenge comes for the American to do that because This is a generalization. You might find yourself somewhere in the middle here. We can be easily tied to the nation's power itself. And we conflate it with God. You see this a lot. Or you might be kind of in the camp that's repulsed at the endless pursuit of American power and want to deteriorate power completely And so it's hard to worship a powerful God or follow a God who intends to reign supreme because when I say words like God has authority, God is supreme, God has supremacy, that might uh, do something inside of you. You don't like that. You don't even like those words. You don't like power. And you you, you want to run away from it. So it might be hard to worship because we worship other gods or we think worship itself assigns too much power. So I want you to think about that and think about, maybe not even for yourself, because you might be 
real good with God. But imagine what kind of challenge people in our culture, in our time and place, face as they pursue God or, this, or, or as, as, as they try to follow God. I kind of fall in the second group more often. That's kind of, that's, that's more my, uh, that's more what's comfortable to me. But a reason I can worship God is because I know that God's power and authority and reign over the world is completely different than the way that the worldly powers try to collect power and authority. There's something different about God, and that's comforting to me. And that's, uh, that whole upside-down message that I'm talking about is centered on that. God is worthy to be worshipped because God is powerful and uses power differently than the way that we see it wields it in the world. God isn't just benevolent. God's means are benevolent. Does that make sense? So the end result isn't just good. How we get there is good. So God, there is no... Uh, there's no uh, ends that justify the means here, right? God is good completely. God is the author of goodness. And God becomes human in order to show us that God loves us. Just sit, sit with that. Sit with that thought for a second. But God isn't weak in God's humanity even. Even in the, we call it the incarnation, becoming human, becoming a fleshly. That word uh, carne is in there, right? That means flesh. That's, that's the word. Or it means beef in Spanish. So there's a lot of variation here. You, you think of carne asada. I think that's what I always think of, right? The incarnation is delicious, yes. I, I agree. <laughs> God isn't weak in God's humanity. God is worthy to be worshipped. So not only do we worship God, we relate to God. And, and, and thus, we are related to God. There's a relationship happening. God is with us now. That's what we're celebrating. And we express God to the world. We have a responsibility and honor and, and something to boast in because of how we relate to God. God related to us in becoming human, thus we can relate to God and be more like God, too. And that's something worth boasting in. We derive our pride, our sense of self, from the one to whom we are related. But that actually means we have to have a sense of self. You have to know who you are. A sense of uh, pride in order to boast in Jesus. And I think it's tricky for Christians to do this. I think it's hard to do that in our time and place because we so frequently see the toxic results of arrogance, of overconfidence, of pride. We can see it hyperbolically displayed right in our headlines. You can see it, right? And it's hard to, it's hard to act like that. We might think we need to deny ourselves to be Christians and, and that's true, but we deny ourselves in order to boast in Jesus. That has to follow, not just self-denial, not just self-deprecation. You're not just diminishing yourselves. 
So I want to resist that false humility that I think people who are conscious of their privilege and the privilege they collect from how the world works, maybe their gender, maybe their race, uh, their nationality, or so on, that false humility that we often exhibit by trying to diminish ourselves even more than we have to. It's hard to worship God if you think God is just mimicking the power of the world. It's hard to be proud of how you relate to God if you think that the community that helps facilitate that relationship with God, the church, is just succumbing to the power of the world. And, and to be honest, sometimes we fail in that regard. But we don't have to. And you don't have to either. And so that's what we're working on. We're, we're, we're recovering from this, this addiction to power, you might say to sin. And so sometimes you'll see the remnant of that uh, that incomplete process. But it's also complete, right? Jesus has conquered death. The reign is happening now. So we sometimes say the kingdom of God is coming and the kingdom of God is here. There's, there's an unusual thing happening. There's a sort of paradox happening. There's a both and happening. So then I hope you feel empowered because God is indeed with us and we are vessels, containers that reveal God to the world. That's you, you do that. People get to know Jesus because they got to know you. And we aren't, uh, and that's not because we're exclusive, um, the, the exclusive ones that do this or the special elected ones that do it. We aren't the only ones, and it's not like we can't learn from others too. But we have something to offer that God gave us, and you have something to offer that God gave you. Just like that song we were singing, you have a light and you can help someone find home. Keep it, keep it lit. You're anointed in your own right. God is with us and that means something and I think that's true of all of us and I wanna keep saying it and I wanna keep believing it because it's really hard to internalize your sense of value. It's really hard to internalize your sense of self, especially if you, if you think having any sense of value or self is wrong. And you think that, you know, self-deprecation is a holy humility. You with me? There's something to be proud about in you because of how God made you, because of God meeting you, because of God knowing you. That's where we get what we are proud of in us. And so, to be a Christian, you have to have a sense of self. And it can be hard to have a sense of self and imagine it as a good thing because we, we, we see how um, corrupt and how evil people make their self-image. You see your arrogant, narcissistic leaders and you say, no, I don't want to be like them. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to boast. But I want to keep sharing with you the, the, that you have a sense of honor because you're related to God. Because it's, it's, it's not only hard to receive our sense of self, it's sometimes hard to see God as this divine entity that actually loves me, that connects to me, right? God is so often, this mighty and powerful God that reigns supreme, that has authority, is so often depicted as one that... Uh, pours down judgment and wrath on us. 
But the Gospels are telling a different story. The Gospels are the, that's what we call the first four books of the uh, New Testament. And it's a story that starts with Jesus. God came to us to be like us, to be with us, to love us, so that we might share that everlasting love and light with a world full of hatred and darkness. That's the idea. That's the nutshell. We could end right there and then just go watch the Eagles if you wanted. <laughs> it's pretty good so far, I thought. But let's, let's just hold on for one second. You can see I'm still imagining what could be happening. The writer of the Gospel of John begins the story. It begins the, the story of Jesus, the biography that he writes of Jesus, with an amazing prologue to his Gospel. It's one that tells the story of creation again and the story of the incarnation, the birth of Jesus into the world. Here, in my opinion, the writer is showcasing both the power and the might of God and the authority of Jesus, too. So how special it is that Jesus came to be one with us. Someone out loud read this, this beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was close beside God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, He was close beside God. All things came into existence through Him. Not one thing that existence came into existence without Him. Life was in Him, and this life was the light of the human race. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man called John, who was sent from God. He came as evidence to give evidence about the light, so that everyone might believe through him. He was not himself the light, but he came to give evidence about the light. The true light, which gives light to every human being, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to the world as his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to anyone who did not, who did accept him, he gave the right to become God's children. Yes, to anyone who believed in his name. They were not born from blood or from fleshly desire, but from the intention of a man, or from the intention of a man, but from God. And the Word became flesh and lived among us. We gazed upon his glory, more like that of his Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Thanks, Kate. The prologue sets up the entire gospel, and one of its goals is to show us this divine presence and power of Jesus. The word, Jesus, the logos, has been here since the beginning, alongside of God, with God, beside God, present to God. It moves us to consider the humanity of God, despite expressing the magnitude of God. God is both human and magnificent. God is uh, imminent among us and transcendent. This is, a, this is a hard idea to work with. This sort of formula would later be made into doctrine during the Council of Nicaea, particularly where you would start to see this uh, kind of uh, um, doctrinal answer to the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. Jesus' divi divine nature and human nature are more explained like a couple of centuries from where we are when this book is written. And it is fair to say, I think, that the formula uh, uh, regarding the divinity and humanity of Jesus informs even how we translate this passage. 
And the actual text, the actual, uh, the, 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 the first time it was written was a little bit more mysterious and confusing. And we can talk later about the specifics if you, if you want. But I think that we have a translation here that's informed by what we later concluded together as a church about God. And I, actually, I think that's fine. I think that's part of the tradition. That's how it works. We seek understanding together. But this powerful passage was incredibly influential in shaping our conception of God. And I think the later clarity of the councils appropriately informed how we read this passage. You know, so we have, this is, this is maybe, maybe like a footnote to what I'm saying. In Christian tradition, there was times where the, the, there was ecumenical councils where, the, where like every Christian in the world got together, or at least their representative did, and they could come to decisions and agreements about how to... Uh, how to proceed, what to believe in, right? There was a famous one in Acts 15 where they decide that you don't have to be circumcised to be a follower of Jesus, big decision, in including Gentile people. And then we had a series of other ones too. And the Catholics still have their ecumenical councils, you know, as they, as they see themselves as the, as the universal church. And I still, I, I, I hold that hope that we might have one again, that we get over all of our differences and everyone gets together to make some decision. I don't know what that would be, but I imagine the possibilities. And so we have these councils that inform how we read things now, and I think that's cool. The writer is telling us that Jesus is divine. A God, right? That's the, in, 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 uh, in the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was close beside God, and the Word was God. And the Word was God. That word for God there can be translated as divine or a god, and there's no definite article, there's no definite article in, 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 in the text, so we have some interpretation to do. We concluded, no, this means Jesus was God. Big step to do that. Um, moreover, Jesus was there since the beginning, and a co-laborer in, crea in creation actually had agency in making the world, and, and, and agency in everything that was made. That's, God uh, in Jesus is being elevated to a very high standard. Here from the beginning created the whole world. More than that, the, the, the word, Jesus, the logos, is the source of light and life, penetrating darkness and death, not being overcome by evil or darkness. That should give us hope too. That's the idea, that's the power of Jesus. The Gospel writer John is using Greek and Jewish ideas here to appeal to his context. Because he's writing largely to uh, Hellenistic Jews, kind of Greeky Jewish people. And the text is, the textual confusion that we have in some of this, when we look at it now and wonder what exactly does this mean? It's, it, it exists in a form in service to bringing this timeless truth to his, to his societal context. And the clarity that many of us read this section of the Bible with is due not, not, not to the writer himself, but to the application and the commentary and doctrine to the text that date well past this completion date. That's what I'm talking about. Nevertheless, John is writing to speak specifically to his time and his place. And he continues to do so when he starts talking about this character, John. 
John the Baptist, he never says Baptist or baptizer, but that's who he's talking about. John, John the writer of the gospel is writing to clarify who John the Baptist is. Why does he insert this part in the passage? We think he's writing a criticism against John the Baptist's offshoot of disciples, setting apart Jesus and John, because there are people who follow John the Baptist like they might Jesus in the time. And so he's writing a, a polemic, a written criticism, saying, no, Jesus is the one to follow. Jesus is a superior, the word of God. And John the Baptist is being sent by God. John testifies to the light, but Jesus is light. So it's not a very aggressive criticism. John is still pretty good. As Augustine put it, John is truthful, Jesus is truth. John is the lamp, but Jesus is the light. So once again, John, the writer of the gospel, is writing to declare Jesus as the word and final authority, the co-laborer in creation of the world and of light. And John is merely making a way for him. John's, uh, John's abasement is exalted. John's humility is exalted. Even, you might even say his humiliation is exalted. But the world Jesus created and the home to which Jesus belongs rejects him, doesn't know him. His own people, Israel, don't know him either. But the writer continues, everyone that did know him and everyone that does know him becomes like children. These people, that's us too, become children of God because God is with them and God received them. Because the creator of the cosmos and the bearer of light received them. The logos creates the cosmos. These rhymy words have some meaning. And, and, and even and I, I don't always share Greek words, but there's something to the poetry of it that's kind of lost with word. Well, word and world are pretty close too. So there's something happening there. The creator of the cosmos, the bearer of light, receives them. It's not by our blood or flesh or by heritage or by anything that you do, not by blood, heritage, or any working of any man, but because of God. And then after this exaltation of Jesus comes the turn, the kicker, the, the moment, the climactic moment, verse 14, right? The shot was the first 13 verses. Here's the chaser. You guys know what I'm talking about? The word became flesh and lived among us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The world, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Rest in peace, Eugene Peterson. The Lagos became flesh and pitched a tent among us. The word of God in all his glory and power, his authority and might moved into the neighborhood, made his dwelling place among us, pitched a tent among us. He tabernacled among us, is the word. God is with us. He became to be with us. And that word tabernacle pitched a tent among us. We, we think of the tabernacle in the Old Testament as the dwelling place for God. Now Jesus is the tent. The true locus of the activity of God is Jesus himself. And that's a powerful image. And what follows is even greater. We all 
We all can see him in his one-of-a-kind glory today. Like that of the Father. Or like Eugene Peterson says, if you keep reading the message, like Father, like Son, generous inside and out. True from start to finish. God is with us. God made God the dwelling place among us. And now we can see it with our own eyes. We saw the glory with our own eyes. We related to the glory. We were born as children from it. Are you getting the magnitude of God and God's personal presence in the world, too? That's the idea we're working with. That's why you can follow God, because God doesn't mimic the power of the world. God became like you, becomes human, becomes humble to relate to you. There's something special, unique about that relationship, and it isn't like any other power in the world, that you're a child of this glorified one. So my friends boast in that wonder and in that glory that God made God's dwelling place among us, that Jesus came to us to know us, to share with us, to bear us as his own children, as heirs to the promise of God, and as one who would reject any worldly allegiance and assign ourselves to be bonded with him. That's what we're doing. It's something new, and it's something old. Here from the beginning and with us until the end. Boast in the fact that God is with us. And then let's be a church and a people who isn't ashamed of the power of God with us, of God being related to us, but rather shares it and shares in it. And that's not an abstraction either. It's a lived reality. When we say something like, you see the glory of God and you can bear it, it's an abstract idea until you make it something else, right? It's an idea that's in our head. It's an idea that's um, ethereal. Um, not, not grounded in reality. We can be a part of the body that allows the word to dwell here, to make a home among us, to abide in us. God can be a tabernacle right here. God can tabernacle as a verb right here. God can pitch God's tent among us, and, and we can be that very tent, that very abode that God abides in. That locus of activity, the lo or a locus of God's activity, can be this very community that you're participating in just by being here now. And we can demonstrate it in word, and we can demonstrate it in deed, to be sure. We can, we can say it with our mouths, and we can do it with our bodies. We're forming a community that expresses that truth. That intimacy that we hold together, the closeness that we share, the truth and love that we offer one another, is our example of our tentedness. We show God is among us by how we relate and by who we're related to. And we show God is among us because we relate to one another. Keep relating, keep caring, keep being invested in each other's lives because that kind of communal work is, it's the revolution. It's what we're talking about. It's the, it's the um, demonstration of God with us. The peace and justice and compassion that we offer our neighbors and our friends is further evidence of this incarnation too. The gospel's real because you make it real. People experience the glory of God because they relate to you. You count that much. We don't boast in Jesus because we were born one way or, or another or because we say the right things, but because God's dwelling among us. I started by saying 
it's hard to be a Christian because it's hard for us to be proud of Jesus sometimes. Not because of our shame, but because of the perversion of pride and the boasting in the world that we so often see. We can easily pledge allegiance to another power or push power away altogether. But what we see here is the great and magnificent power of God, but also that God is with us, that God is among us, and that means something. Can you hold on to that truth today, that God is among us and in you too? Can you receive the blessing that you're a child of God? That God and and all of God's magnitude and glory and power still chose to relate to you, to love you, to name you as his child? That there's no judgment or condemnation and there's no need to be ashamed. That feeling of shame and insecurity that you might have, that self-deprecation that you hold, it's not holy. It's not of God. And may no one ever tell you that and reject it when they do. I have to tell myself that every day. You know, it's, it's easier to preach it than to believe it. It's easier to say it than to hold it. So I even like the poetic language. It's hard to hold because there's always something. There's, there's some other pl- tape playing in my head. Something else, is, some, something else is undoing it. You're a child of God, the beloved of God. Receive that truth today. And don't do it alone. Encourage one another. Edify one another. Exhort one another. Love each other so that you know how God loves you. Treat each other as you imagined a loving God would treat you, as you've experienced God treating you. The church can be different because we can love each other that way. It's hard to receive that sometimes, but if you do, If you do, and as you do, and as we do with one another, it'll be much easier to not be ashamed of it. Let's say a prayer and do some talk back, shall we? Thank you, Lord, for being with us, for being present in us. Even as we read this uh, passage from John and we imagine experiencing your glory in real time, in a real place, may we express it practically. May we be Jesus to one another in a way that is knowable, uh, palpable, and tangible. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.